Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys all doing this morning? Doing good. Someone's really excited. That's awesome. If you have a Bible, grab it. Open it up to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we are going to be. We've been going uh, verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to continue to do that today. We're going to finish Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table over here. Uh, You can take that. That's our gift uh, to you. You can also download a Bible app on your phone and follow along with us there. Just really quickly wanted to follow up uh, something that Ken said. We are indeed doing baptisms on uh, Sunday, June 9th. That's pretty cool, hey? Hopefully after this sermon, you're way more pumped about that. Uh, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put this out there. So a couple of details. Sunday, June 9th, as Ken said, uh, we have like four people lined up already to get baptized. And I don't. This is just an arbitrary thing. And I just not even sure if I should put this out there or not. But I will. Um, by the way, my voice is hoarse from last Sunday, but not from preaching, uh, from yelling at the Raptors game. Still horse a week later. That's a true Raptors fan right there. Um, uh, Just going to put this out there. Uh, We, me, I should say me, and I'm going to start getting you guys to join me. I'm praying that God would give us 10 baptisms on Sunday, June 9th, okay? So some of you suckers need to step up and get baptized is what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. Six of you to be exact. Um, So you can talk to your community group leader if you want to get baptized. Uh, If you don't, you're like, what's a community group? I'm not in one, but I need to get baptized. Uh, You can come and talk to myself. You can talk to Andrew, who was up here, send an email uh, to the church office. We'll follow up with you. If you just want to ask questions about baptism, you're not sure if you should be doing it, uh, come and talk to us and we will help you out. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. Here we go. We're going to get right to work because I got a lot of stuff I want to unpack with us this morning. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 35. I'm just going to read it and then we'll stop and go through it. So here's what it says, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, uh, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Okay, so here's what's been happening. We have this verse here, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, where Matthew is essentially doing something very specific for us. He's summarizing the whole of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, So this one verse is Matthew giving us a, a picture of all that Jesus has been doing in his earthly ministry. Now, you probably don't remember this because it was a long time ago, but way back in Matthew chapter 4, we started a section that kind of goes from Matthew chapter 5 up until the end of Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 4, the last verse of that chapter, verse uh, 24, Matthew writes this, news about him being Jesus spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Uh, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 24 sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And so, uh, you know, obviously, like, is this just, you know, Matthew was kind of light on content, so he just repeated himself? Or, or is there something else happening here? Well, the, the latter is the obvious. There's, there's something else happening here. Uh, these are what we call bookends to a section of uh, go- the Gospels. As we've been talking, as we've been going through the Gospel, rather, we've been saying that this isn't merely just biography, that when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're not reading biography in the, the way that we understand biography. The way that we understand biography is that, uh, you know, we just kind of give data or facts about a person's life. Well, that's not how the Gospels were written. They are indeed giving us data or facts about the life and ministry of Jesus, but it's not necessarily linear. It's, it's the gospel writers are trying to make bigger points. 
And so what's interesting is as you come out of Matthew chapter four, you go into verse or chapter five and you have chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, which is the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a good chunk of time in the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapter eight and nine, Jesus comes off the mountain and he starts to heal and he starts to do ministry. He starts to put into practice or live out the Sermon on the Mount that he had been preaching. And so what we see here in Matthew chapter nine, verse 35 is, is Matthew saying like, that's a section of the life and ministry of Jesus. And what Matthew's trying to show us is this is actually a good picture of the whole of the life and ministry of Jesus. So he gives us kind of three things that identify what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And some people, theologians, they call this the the threefold ministry of Jesus. They say there's three things that he did. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was preaching or proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he was healing every disease and sickness. Now, if you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, and you go, okay, apart from his work on the cross, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, these, these are the three markers of his earthly ministry, uh, then we should probably, as the church, consider these to be three markers of our ministry. I mean, Adam made a comment in his story that, you know, he, he kind of like uh, took, took, did a bit of a double take before he said it. He's like, when, when we moved into the neighborhood, it was as if Jesus moved into the neighborhood. We don't need to double take on that. That's, that's called good theology, when Adam and Heather moved into their neighborhood, Jesus did move into the neighborhood. We know this, right? What is the church called? The Apostle Paul calls the church what? The body of Christ. And we often use that by way of analogy to describe, as Ken did this morning, all the different gifts that we have in the church, right? And, and so we're a body, and you know, some of you are the armpit, and some of you are the big toe, and some of you are the pretty face. That's just, right? That's just how it goes. You, I'll let you decide which one you want to be but we all have different gifts. We all play a different, our different roles in the church. And so we're a body. That's, that's a good analogy. The apostle Paul uses that to describe the different gifts and the way they're used in the church. But he also in Ephesians, when he talks about the body of Christ, he talks about the church this way. He says, we are the body of Christ of whom he, Jesus is the head who fills them, the body all in all. And so we get this picture of the church. And, and this is, this is really important guys. This is really important for you to understand because I think some of us have a really low view of the church. We have a really weak, impotent view of the church that it's this event we attend on Sunday. Man, I hope the music doesn't suck. Man, I hope the preacher's good. Man, I hope they got some, you know, coffee or what. Like, I just hope it's good. I hope it, I hope it entertains me. I hope it's, it meets my needs. That's, that's what I'm looking for. But the apostle Paul is saying, like, that's not what the church is. The church is actually the body of Christ. It's the on, check it, it's the ongoing incarnation of Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what God looks like, look at me. Then Jesus leaves. He says, after I leave, one who will, one will come after me who is going to fill you. He's going to testify to your hearts and then you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter one, verse eight. And the spirit of God comes. And if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus. You've given your life to Jesus. And you know, you sing songs. I don't know if this ever happens. This happens to me. I don't, I'm not a big crier, but I cry when I'm here. I'm cry, I cry when I'm here and we're singing worship songs to Jesus. I was over there crying like a little schoolgirl. Nothing against schoolgirls. Schoolgirls are awesome. We love schoolgirls, but I was crying because Jesus is my hope and stay. He is my only defense. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. What is that? Is that just because I'm weepy and sappy? No, I'm tough. I'm strong. I got a stiff upper lip. That's the spirit of God testifying to my heart, the goodness and grace of Jesus. And it caused me to want to raise my hands and worship. And it caused me to want to praise God because I'm transformed and I'm changed. 
But here's the reality. If that's the case, if you are in Christ, if the Spirit of God is in you, then you are the ongoing incarnation of Christ. That's what we are. So so here's what my point is. If this is what the ministry of Jesus looks like, this is probably what the ministry of the church should look like. If these are the markers of the life and ministry of Jesus, these then should also be the markers of the life and ministry of you and me and and us, because you alone are not the church. We are the church. You, You can't be the church at home listening to a podcast in your pajamas, Right? That's, that's not the church. Like when people say, you know, we have church online, I'm like, uh, uh, what does that mean? I don't understand. Like that's like, it's, it's not a thing. There's no such thing as online church. There's no such thing as a, an online campus. Like this is not a real thing. It's an oxymoron. It's like grape nuts, right? It doesn't have grapes or nuts in it. My wife loves this stuff. It just looks like bowls of rabbit turd. Why don't they just call it a box of rabbit turds that you have to put sugar on to make it palatable? So the only way you can actually be the church is by being in community with people. That's, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. That's who we are. So, so here's my point. What was my point? Right. <laughs> Jesus was my point. I got thinking about grape nuts because whenever, whenever I go to the States, I'm like, baby, can I bring you something back? She's like, bring me grape nuts. I'm like, why? Like, why? Why would you want another sermon for another day? So if these are the three markers of Jesus' ministry, these need to be the three markers of the church. So let's just unpack these really quick. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's important for us to understand. So the first marker is this, that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. So Jesus had a teaching ministry. Uh, so, so here's how this would work. In the synagogues, Jesus, the synagogue was a place of community. It was a place of worship. It was a place of teaching, not unlike a church gathering or a church building. This is where the people would go. They would go and worship. They would go and hear from the scriptures. They'd go hear a sermon. Uh, you know, they would just kind of do uh, very similar things to what we're doing. Uh, they would have local teachers uh, preach. They'd also have itinerant preachers come in and, and teach from the scriptures. And this is what Jesus did. So Jesus would come in, he would teach and preach. We won't go there this morning, but in Luke chapter four, we get this picture of Jesus coming in and teaching and preaching. And what's interesting or, or important for us to understand this morning is not that Jesus taught, it's how he taught. In Luke chapter four, uh, Jesus goes into the synagogue. He opens up to Isaiah 61, reads from Isaiah 61. They didn't have Bibles like this. They had scrolls and they would share them. And that's just kind of how it worked in <laughs> Bible apps and stuff like that. And Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 and he reads all about the the prisoners being set free and the captives being released and the blind receiving sight and this picture of like Jubilee of of the spirit of God doing an amazing work. And then here's the interesting part, right? He rolls up the scroll and he goes, I'm the answer to this text. This, This scripture finds its fulfillment in me. In other words, I'm the point. I'm the illustration. I'm the application. The whole thing is about me. Like, that's crazy. Like, if I stood up here, someone stood up here, and we said that on a Sunday, like, you should yell heretic and want to burn us at the stake, or you should leave, or we should be fired, or you should go find a new place. Because when we teach and preach, we want it to be all about Jesus. But when it is Jesus that's teaching and preaching, you can say, this is all about me. And so for us as the church, we place a high value on the teaching of Scripture. We, we place a high value on the teaching of Scripture, but, but not just the teaching of Scripture, the right teaching of Scripture. We, we want to teach the Bible in such a way that it would make much of Jesus. Jesus is always the point. I was talking to a young guy in a coffee shop this week, and, and we were just talking about sermons and, and stuff. And, and I said to him, I said, you know, here's the question you need to ask when you go and listen to a sermon. Who is the hero? Are you the hero? 
Is this about you? Is this about your life? Is this about making your life better? Is this about, you know, you trying hard to, to, you know, to have a better marriage or to be a better parent or to, you know, just find your whatever inner thing and make yourself into something great? Like, is that what this is all about? Because if you're the hero, that's a problem because you're not the hero of this book. Jesus is the hero of this book. Here's the other problem, though. If you're the hero, you're also the villain. You actually can't bear the weight of being your own savior. So you can't make your life better. You can't make your marriage better. I mean, there's probably some things you can do to make your life better. Don't hear me wrong on this, okay, dudes? You're like, see, I told you I'm doing my best. No, that's not what I'm saying. Some of you just need to get taken behind the woodshed and beat with a stick, and we got a ministry here. Call me, I'll take care of your husband. Never mind, okay. So Jesus is the hero, though. That's my point. That's my point. And so when, when we stand up here, I, I hope every Sunday, this is what you're gonna hear, grab your Bibles and open them too. That should be the first line of every sermon you ever hear. Grab your Bibles and open them too because I don't know what else to say to start a sermon. Like sometimes people will say to me, my, my neighbor Melissa who's here, she'll say, what are you preaching on this week? And my answer is? Well, I say Jesus, actually. I say Jesus, nice try. Jesus, that's it. We're a band. We have one song. We play it every week. Like, like my point in telling you all this is that this isn't about us. This isn't about necessarily our comfort. This isn't about our well-being. The reason we exist, the reason we gather is to make much of Jesus. And so we open the Bible and we teach the Bible, not because we want to make your life better, but because we want you to meet Jesus. And we firmly believe that as you submit more and more of your life to Jesus, here's what's going to happen. Your life will actually get better. It doesn't necessarily work the other way, but I promise you this, if you humbly submit yourself to Jesus, your life will indeed get better. It might not make you happy, but you will have this deep abiding sense of joy in your heart to know that God is sitting on the seated on the throne and you don't have to be. And so my point in telling you all this is that this isn't a pep rally. Like even the songs we sing and the, the liturgy that we rehearse, we don't sit in our staff meetings or in our planning meetings and go, do you think people are gonna like this? Like, we kind of view this like Buckley's, you know? Like, it doesn't necessarily taste very good, but you kind of need it. Welcome to West Village, by the way, if it's your first week. <laughs> but here's, here's my point, though. We're not going to sing songs about oceans. Right? We're not, we're not going to sing songs about our feelings. We're not going to sing songs to evoke some kind of emotional response or elicit something from you. We're not going to teach the Bible in such a way as to tickle your ears or to, you know, just spin words that are going to make your heart sing. We want you to see Jesus because we believe that's what you need. I don't know about you. I don't know what your week was like. Some of you know what my week was like. I need Jesus. I need him. Everything else will be taken away, I promise, but he will remain. And so Jesus teaches in the synagogue. Second aspect to Jesus' earthly ministry. So he teaches in the synagogue. He was also proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So this word proclaiming means preach. I like this one. This is my favorite one because I like to preach. Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom. He was heralding the good news of the kingdom. We see this, right? Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is a sermon on the mount. Jesus stands up and he preaches about the kingdom of God. He preaches about the kingdom of heaven. We see this all through the gospel of Matthew. He's preaching on mountaintops. He's preaching in boats. He's preaching in people's homes. He's preaching on beaches. This is what he does. He's a preacher. He's a proclaimer. He preaches the gospel. He preaches the good news that God is restoring all things unto himself. 
And some of you might ask, well, what's the difference between Jesus teaching in the synagogues and Jesus preaching or or proclaiming the kingdom? Well, when he's teaching in the synagogues, here's what he was doing. He's going back. He's going back into the Old Testament. He's going back through the prophets. He was going back and saying, I am the fulfillment of these things. I want you to see how I am the answer to every verse in the Old Testament, that everything is pointing forwards to me. But when he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he's doing something different. He's pointing forward. He's giving us a picture of what he is bringing. He's giving us a picture of what it looks like when Jesus' kingdom comes in its fullness. And, And here's what we see. When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, we see transformation. We see hearts and lives transformed. We see people healed. We see uh, those who are far from God come into relationship with God. And, and so here's, here's how this works itself out in our context. We, we want to be people of good doctrine. We want to be people that teach and preach the Bible well. And in some ways, we're a little bit snobby about this. We're snobby about the songs we sing. We're snobby about the, the, the types of sermons we preach. And, and some of that's our pride. And some of that's just wanting to be careful, good Bible teachers, some of it's sin we need to repent of, and some of it's things that we should celebrate. But if that's all we are, if all we do is get our doctrine right, but we are not changed and transformed by the King of kings and Lord of lords coming to bear on our lives, then we don't have good doctrine. See, to have right doctrine and not be changed and transformed is to have no doctrine at all. Doctrine that is alive, doctrine that points to Jesus, doctrine that finds its fulfillment in Jesus, always, every single time, will lead to heart transformation. Will always lead to a heart and mind that is being renewed by the power of the Spirit to make us look more and more like Jesus. So so here's what this means for us, just really pragmatically or practically. If you've been here for any length of time, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, then your life should look a lot different today than it used to. Your life should be changed. Your life should be transformed. There's this kind of ongoing renewal that takes place in the hearts and minds of followers of Jesus. But but if what you're doing is just a religious game, you study the Bible, you do religious stuff, you jump through the hoops, you read the verses, you got the big Bible, you underline all the stuff, but your life looks no different. And you don't know the life-transforming power of Jesus. You don't know the power of the kingdom of God coming to bear on your heart. I'm not saying you're not going to go to heaven when you die. I'm not going to say you're pagan or anything like that. I'm just saying it's conceivable that you've stopped. You've stopped allowing Jesus to proclaim the good news of the kingdom into your heart. Because we never stop changing and transforming So we want to be a people that have right, sound, good doctrine that points to Jesus. But we want to be a people who are learning to love better, whose hearts are becoming more soft. We want to be the kind of husbands who are indeed loving our wives better because Jesus has loved us. We want to be the kind of wives that are learning to love our husbands better because Jesus has loved us. We want to be the kind of people who are learning to open up our homes more, share more of our resources, love each other, and love God better. Because the kingdom of God is coming to bear on our lives. Third thing is this. We see that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and he was healing every disease 
and sickness. He was healing every disease and sickness. Now, when we read the gospel accounts, there's this reality, there's a couple of realities that we have to understand. There's this historical reality, right? Like Jesus did indeed heal people. And, and one of the main reasons that Matthew and other gospel writers show us that Jesus was healing people was, was that we would see that the claims he was making were true. In other words, the healing ministry of Jesus, the signs and wonders of Jesus were there to validate the claims of Jesus, the teaching and preaching of Jesus. And they were supposed to look at these healing miracles and the things that Jesus was doing, going, man, this guy has authority, he has power. That's what we see when we go back to Matthew chapter 9, where, where the, the Jewish people, the people that were hearing Jesus teach and preach and seeing him do things, they said, man, the Pharisees and scribes teach, but, but it's nothing like when Jesus teaches. He has an authority like no other teacher we've ever seen. And so there's a reality that, that that's going to be the case. When Jesus comes on the scene, when the Spirit of God comes on the scene, there's going to be healings. But there's something deeper that happens here in these healing miracles. Like that's one layer. There's the historical layer. But then there's a deeper layer. The deeper layer is the, the meaning behind the, the miracles. Like in every single one of the miracles of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Matthew had a bigger point that he was trying to give to us. It wasn't just about blind people seeing or lame people walking or deaf people hearing. It was more about the who. Who was Jesus healing? If you go back through the Gospels, you see it was, it was lepers. It was demon-possessed people. It was blind people. It was, it was mother-in-laws, right? It was all these outsiders, right? Mother-in-laws, they're the outsiders. If you're a mother-in-law, I don't know what to do with that. But, but there's this inherent reality that the, the miracles that we see in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 were not just physical events, but they were, they were telling spiritual stories to us about how God's heart is for the outsider, how Jesus came and pursued the lost. He always went to those who were the furthest out. And, and so there's this inherent reality for us as the church that we need to be the kind of people that are for those who are the furthest from God. Like God's heart is for the outsider. His heart is for the one who doesn't know him. His heart is for the one who feels like they're the furthest out. They're marginalized. They're broken. And Jesus humbles himself. He stoops down in a way that is miraculous, yes, but more than that, it's scandalous. It's shocking. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would go to a party. He would walk past the religious people, the moral people. He would walk right past them and into a home full of strippers, drug addicts, homeless people, homosexuals, the furthest. And he would eat with them. He would say, these are my people, not these. That needs to be a marker of the church. And not just a Sunday morning from 10 to 11, 30, but our whole lives. Because that's the heart of God. So we have the threefold ministry of Jesus in verse 35. And then in verse 36, we, we start to see a transition from Matthew chapter 9 to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, which we'll get to next week, is all about Jesus sending out his disciples. But as he transitions there, we get this picture of Jesus' heart before he sends out the disciples. And so look at what he says in verse 36. And, and just notice this, that 36 flows right out of 35. And when you have a right understanding of who Jesus is, when the gospel of the kingdom is coming to bear on your heart, 
when your heart is for the outsider because you recognize that you were the outsider and Jesus' heart was for you, look at what Matthew says in verse 36 about Jesus. When he, being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. So just, again, for those of you who haven't been following with us, Jesus, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, he's been doing all these healings. He's been raising people from the dead. The blind have been receiving sight. And so naturally, he's drawing a crowd. There's a lot of people around. We don't know about the size of the crowd. Like, that's not Matthew's point. is isn't how many people were there. Matthew's point is, look at Jesus' disposition towards the crowds. Look at, he uses this word, compassion. And this word here for compassion, the Greek word, it's, it's this word that denotes like an angst. In his, like, it literally means like his bowels were shaken. So, so this isn't like, you know, these, these hallmark shows on Netflix that I hear about because my wife and daughter watch them while I fall asleep on the couch. It's not like this sentimental compassion, like, oh, sappy, eh, here's a card. I hope you're feeling better. Get well soon. Praying for you. It's not what he's talking about. Matthew's talking about Jesus' disposition being that, that he was agonizing. Like he looked over the crowds and, and he was, ag- there was like this agonizing reality as he saw them. Like deep in his bones, there was a brokenness in him for the crowds. Why? Look at what he says. Because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The the phrase he uses there, harassed and helpless, just means like beaten, torn apart, disheveled, weary, tired, so he looks out at this massive crowd of people. He sees that they're, they're disheveled, tired, weary, burdened. And he says, I have compassion on you. Why? Because you're like sheep without a shepherd. What does he mean? Well, at this point, most of these people would have been Jewish. Up to this point, these Jewish people would have been, be- been led by the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the religious people. They were the ones who were shepherding the flock of God at that time. And there was something about the way that these men were shepherding this particular flock and and really the nation of Israel in general that was leaving them weary and tired. If you go back to verse 34, we talked about this last week. When they were talking about Jesus, they actually looked at Jesus and they called him the spawn of Satan. They didn't like Jesus. Why didn't they like Jesus? Because they really liked the control they had over the people. And so what is, what is Matthew's point here? What is he trying to get? Here's what he's saying to us. He's saying that whenever there's a religious influence over a group of people, it's going to leave you tired and weary. That religion always leaves you tired and weary because all religion is is our attempt to control the outward nature of our lives. What Jesus is doing here is he's looking out at the people and he recognizes that there's a brokenness in them But what he sees is that the way that they've been taught to cope with their brokenness is actually hurting them, not helping them. That what religion does for us is it says, try harder, do more, be better. And if you jump through some hoops and if you play these religious games with God, here's what you can end up doing. You can can fix the brokenness in your life. And so what do we do? We do that. We, We just try. We try to be better people. But we put on masks. We pretend. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You're not doing fine. Your life sucks. I know your life sucks because my life sucks. You have kids. They're under five. It must be horrible. Kidding. Joking. Love kids. I got a lot of them. 
But until they can buckle their own seatbelts and tie their own shoes, life kind of does suck. It's like, I can't fit in the back of the minivan. <laughs> Just turn your own seatbelt off. Oh my gosh. But we pretend. We pretend to be okay. We pretend that we have life all figured out. We, we pretend that everything's good. And it's exhausting to pretend. And, and church people are some of the worst for pretending. I love it when people come up to me and, and I say, hey man, how you doing? Right, it's Sunday morning and I'm like thinking about preaching. I'm not actually thinking about you. And I'm quickly going like, what is their name? I really don't want to forget their name. This is like the seventh week in a row that I'm going to forget their name. I suck at names. Why do I suck at names? Should I just tell them I don't know their name? Or should I just call them, hey bud, or hey you? And, you know, this is what I'm thinking about because I don't really care how you're doing. I ask you how you're doing and then you're like, I'm not doing good. I actually love that. I love that because it's real. But sometimes we get so caught up in pretending. We get so caught up in, in trying really hard. And it leaves us weary. Like, like if, if we think that somehow we can earn the love, favor, and mercy of God, that's an exhausting proposition. And some of you, here, you might be here, you're like, this is my first time in church. I don't go to church. I'm not a religious guy. Sweet, I'm off the hook. Here's the reality. You don't have to go to church to be religious. You can be very religious without ever stepping foot in a church gathering or a church building or a church thing. Right? Your church could be the, the culture, and your Bible could be what everyone thinks of me, and you're trying really hard. You're just reading from the teleprompter of culture to try and measure up. And I mean, just look at the state of affairs in culture, right? Like, what, what do we see when we look out at culture? We see a lot of really tired people. We, saw, we see a lot of really weary people. We see a lot of really broken people. We, we see a lot of people that look like this. They look like the crowds. And I can't tell you how many 20-somethings I've heard from in the last couple of years who are like, I'm burning out. You're 20. Like, you live at home. You don't even have a plant. You have a job, but you don't have a plant. And you're telling me you're tired. Like, what is your responsibility? Like, get up in the morning before the crack of dinner and get pants on. That's a win if you're 20. How can you possibly be tired? Oh, man, I'm like doing stuff. Like have kids, get a job, pay a mortgage, and then let's talk. But there's this reality that everyone's exhausted. Everyone's burning out. Everyone's frying. Everyone's like, they don't know what to do with themselves. The, the number one selling book, you know, uh, the book category is like self-help, right? Because we know we're broken. And, and, and the religion of culture just says, try hard, do more, more square footage, more zeros in the bank. If you could just get the, you know, the, the latest iPhone, that somehow that's going to fix you. Like, what a farce. See, what religion does, whether it's religion, religion, or the religion of culture, what it does is it presumes that the brokenness is somewhere out here. And that if you just change some of your external circumstances, you can fix the brokenness that's in your heart. But here's the reality. I think all of us, if we're honest, we know but that doesn't do it for us. That's why some of you have a debt problem. You have a debt problem because you're just going to go further and further into debt, trying, trying to satisfy this deep longing you have in your soul with a vacation or a new car. It's foolish. It's never going to work. That's why some of you have a sex addiction, a porn addiction, because you know you're broken. And for a brief moment in time, that actually brings you some measure of comfort. You get to escape. 
That's why you have an anger issue. That's why you're a workaholic. That's why your marriage is on the rocks. It's not because of her. It's not because of him. It's why you're depressed. It's why you struggle with anxiety. It's why you struggle with burnout. And we think if we can change out there, that'll fix everything. We're just like sheep without a shepherd. We're like sheep without a shepherd. We need a shepherd. We need a shepherd who can lead our souls, who can meet us in our deepest place of need. And if you're here this morning, you're like, guilty as charged. Hear this. This is beautiful, guys. This is beautiful. I don't know what your picture of God is in your mind. You think of him when you close your eyes at night. But he looks out at you. And he doesn't think, what the heck? Get it together. How many times have you heard this? What's your problem? Why can't you figure this out already? Matthew says he has compassion for you. The deepest part of his being, I don't even know what that means, but deep in his bones, he agonizes His heart breaks because he longs for you to know the one who can satisfy your soul. So Jesus looks out at the crowds. He has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Look at verse 37. Kind of shifts, makes a hard right here, Jesus does. He says to his Disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then verse 38, he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus looks out of the crowds. He sees the brokenness. He sees the, the lostness. He has compassion on them. He's moved. He sees the need. And then look at what he says here. This is, this is again, it's kind of a hard right. He says the harvest is plentiful. In other words, like, turn that frown upside down, son. It's not as bad as it looks. There's opportunity here. So, so Jesus looks out and he sees the brokenness and he says, actually, this isn't just a bad thing. This is actually a good thing because I see an opportunity for the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom to come to bear on the lives of these people. I, I see an opportunity for the good news of Jesus to come in and change and transform them. I remember when we started uh, Westville, it was like eight years ago now, people when we started West Village and we were going to plant in Victoria, people said to us, man, there's not a lot of Christians in Victoria. I'm not sure that's a good place to plant a church. I was like, well, we're not planting a church for Christians. They've already got a church. We're planting the church for non-Christians. So we want to go to the places where there aren't a lot of Christians and plant the church there. And I used to use this analogy. It's probably not a good one, but this is one I used to use. It's like if I was starting a business, I would want to go where there's no competition, right? There's nobody else who's going to compete with me. We've got access to the entire marketplace, Right? The, the, the whole marketplace is ours because there's nobody else doing what we're doing. This is amazing. This is a great opportunity. And that's a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. There's, there's no other good shepherds. And so I actually see an opportunity for us to come in and preach, proclaim the gospel in such a way that's going to resonate with the hearts of people because they've seen the folly of religion. They've seen the folly of, of religious leaders. They've seen the folly of their ways. And if somebody would just come in and preach and proclaim the gospel to them, they would respond. 
I, I think, friends, honestly, I think this is a great time for the church. I mean, it, it's, it's not if you look at statistics. Statistics will tell you that it's a horrible time for the church. Just the statistics in Victoria alone, we cite these all the time. We're going to continue to cite them because we want to always be reminded of the crowds that we are planted among. But Victoria is one of the least church cities in North America. Somewhere between 3 and 5% in church on a Sunday. There's about 85 churches, most of them plateaued or declining. There's a few churches in our city that are actually seeing people come to faith in Jesus. Most church plants that are growing, full disclosure, including ours, are growing by transfer growth. Okay, many of the people that show up on a, on a Sunday to a church, like we have new people, they come from other churches. We like the preaching better here. We like the kids' ministry better here. We like the music better here. You're better looking than our guy. Well, obviously, you know, like, I knew that. I just, stop. So we're going to come to your thing because we like your thing better than your thing. And that's great. If, you know, it pumps us up, makes me feel really good about myself. That's fantastic. But here's the problem. It doesn't actually change the numbers. It's not more people meeting Jesus. It's what we call sheep shuffling. There's roughly 10,000 followers of Jesus in the city of Victoria. You look out culturally, and it's easy to look out culturally and go, man, church is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, let's just hunker down, do our thing, start a school, a commune, we'll all make our own clothes, sew our own dresses, churn butter. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. We'll all buy a big property and love each other until Jesus comes back. But Jesus is going, no, no, there's actually a great opportunity. There's a fantastic opportunity for the people of God to actually live out the authentic gospel of the kingdom amongst those who don't know Jesus. Now, I'm not naive. I recognize people are not, like Adam said, they're not going to just like fall over and give their lives to Jesus. But here's the reality. Most of the people I meet, most of the people I talk to are actually rejecting a false gospel. They're rejecting a Jesus that doesn't even exist. Like I'll sit down with my friends, you know, I have coffee with this group of guys every Friday, one of them's an atheist, one of them's a Christian, and the other guy's like a classic West Coast SBNR, spiritual but not religious. And we'll get talking about stuff, and some weeks we talk about nothing, and other weeks we talk about church and Jesus and all kinds of stuff. And they start telling me about Christianity, and it usually has something to do with the Republican Party or the Conservative Party or a view on this or a view on that. And I was like, did you know that most of the Christians in the world don't live in North America? You know that Jesus didn't have a political party? Did you know that sometimes people hijack the gospel for something that it was never intended to do. This isn't intended to be a political statement. Save your emails or email Andrew. He'll get right back to you. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying like a lot of times, here's my point. A lot of times people are rejecting a Jesus that doesn't even exist. I'm like, if I thought that's what Jesus was, I wouldn't uh, follow him either. And so there's an opportunity for us in our city to actually authentically live out the gospel. There's an opportunity in your neighborhood to authentically live out what it means to be a community of people who love each other like family because the city of Victoria doesn't know that very well. Here's what I hear from people that move to Victoria all the time. Very friendly, but not very, or very nice, but not very friendly. They will wave to you, they will smile, and they will ignore you. Yeah, let's go have dinner sometime, which is code for never ask me over again. And when you actually come in and live out the gospel and they actually see a group of people who are radically changed and transformed and are reorienting their lives around one another. And some of this stuff is super simple, like putting gardens in your front lawn. Like just this week, we had some stuff go down in our family and like within six minutes, we had an army of people dropping off food at our house because most people were afraid. Like my wife is gone, she's out of town and people were just afraid for my children's well-being. So they brought food over to my house and I kept getting asked by my neighbors, why are all these people bringing food to your house? I'm like, oh, this is my church family. They, we love each other. 
This is, this is how we do life. They're like, that's weird. Yes. That's the gospel changing and transforming us. And so there's actually a great opportunity here. But I don't want you to miss this. Look at who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to, it says this in verse 37, to his disciples. To you and me. This is like Matthew chapter 28, right? Like, go and make disciples. Here's the implication for us. The implication for us is that in the same way that Jesus was sent, in the same way that Jesus was a missionary, in the same way that he came from heaven to earth, he entered into a particular culture at a particular time and spoke a particular language and was on mission to a particular group of people. What's he doing here? He's sending us. He's sending us to be his hands and feet. He's sending us to be his church. He's sending us to be his body, his ongoing incarnation into the world to make much of him. And so, so the question for us is, do we look out of the crowds with compassion? With compassion. And, and again, it's not like this, yeah, I sure hope some of them meet Jesus. It's this deep in my bones, changed and transformed by Jesus. And now I'm going to live differently so that these people can come to know him. I mean, it was this same compassion that moved Jesus to give his life for you and me on the cross. So when we look out at our neighborhood, our kids' elementary school, where we work, are we moved with compassion? We were on a a leader's retreat a couple weeks ago took all our elders, staff, community group leaders uh, away on a retreat. That's why we didn't meet on the Sunday. And part of that time was just uh, sharing stories and getting some of our different leaders to get up and share stories. And uh, Caleb and Jenny Ray got up, and uh, they shared at one of our sessions. And uh, you know, just shared about some of what God's doing out in suit. God's doing a great work out in suit. Guys, it's really cool what God's doing out in suit. People are meeting Jesus. Lots of non-Christians connecting. Uh, there's people that have come to faith in Jesus in just the last few weeks out there. It's fantastic, fantastic. After they were done sharing, I, I just kind of off the cuff, I said to Caleb and Jenny, I said, what do you want? Like, what do you want for soup? And it was, it, it was unreal. I don't know how well you, you know Caleb, but sometimes you're like, there's a pulse, right, Caleb? You got a pulse? You're alive? You're with us? Yup. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's quivering. His heart's beating faster. His lips are quivering. All of a sudden, Jenny Ray, and this isn't a surprise because she's a, she's a bit of a firecracker, but she's fired up, and you know you can just see the Spirit of God moving something in them. And they started to share how when they first moved out to Souk, I think it was like three years ago or something like that, they, they felt this darkness over the place. They felt this spiritual oppression over the community of Souk, and they started to weep as they talked about their desire to see the Spirit of God move in their neighborhood in such a way that it would actually change the landscape, that when you came out to Souk, it actually felt different because the gospel of the kingdom was coming to bear on Souk. Like, we hope our community group turns into a church plan. We don't know how that's going to happen. We have no idea what God's going to do, but that's our heart. Our heart is that elementary schools, neighborhoods, workplaces, coffee shops, grocery stores would be radically transformed because of the gospel. 
They looked out at their city and they had compassion. They were moved. And so the question for us is, what's our vision for our neighborhoods? What's our vision for our kids' elementary schools, where we work? Are we moved with compassion to see what God and only God and I know we hear that, and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Look at verse 38. Look at what Jesus says. What are we to do? Verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to the harvest field. What's Jesus say we should do? Pray. Pray. Is prayer an excuse for apathy? No. Is prayer Jesus' way of saying, hey, guys, you're off the hook. You don't got to do nothing. No, that's not what's going on here. But prayer is us admitting that Jesus can do more in one second than we can do in 10 years of pouring our guts out. Look at what he says. Ask who? the Lord of the harvest. Whose harvest? It's his. Whose city? His. Whose neighborhood? His. It's his. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's beautiful. It's not your job to change your neighborhood. It's not your job to change your workplace. It's not your job to change your kids' elementary school. It's not your job. It's not our job to change the city. It's our job to pray to him who is the Lord of the harvest. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I want to close with two very practical things for us. Two asks, and this comes not just from me. This comes from our elders, this comes from the leaders in our church. We talked about this while we were away on our retreat. And this is so dear to us as a church. I actually, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but prophetically think that this is, I just think this is the most important thing we can do right now as a church. Okay? So two things, and I think these will be on the screen behind me. The first one is this. I'm going to ask you, boldly ask you, to set your alarm to pray every day at 10.02. My alarm buzzes every single day on my phone at 10.02. I do a.m., you can do p.m. You could also do Matthew 9.38. You could do 9.38 if you wanted to, if that works a little bit better for you. Luke chapter 10, verse 2 says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. And so here's the ask. The ask is that you would do that. You would set your alarm to 10.02, and here's what I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray that Jesus would send more missionaries to the city of Victoria. I'm going to ask you to pray to Jesus to send more church planners to the city of Victoria. And just totally as an aside here, he's doing it. Right? When we started West Village eight years ago, there were two church planners in the city. Now there's, I think there's eight or nine of us. You guys are doing great work. It's fantastic. But there's a lot more work to be done, friends. 
We, we, every time you come in, somebody comes in and they're from another church, we're like, great, we've been praying. We've been praying you would come. We're going to teach you how to be a missionary. You move here from another city, great, we're glad you're here. We've been praying for you. I had the privilege of sitting across the coffee table from a church planter who's planting a church down in uh, Oak Bay. First thing I got to say to him, his name's Mike Blackaby. I said, Mike, I've been praying for you for eight years, man. It's amazing. And so just pray with us. Pray with us that God would continue to change and transform the city of Victoria. And here's one more thing I want to add to that. And I say you would pray that Jesus would send us a church planter in 2020. We don't have plans. We have no idea what God's going to do, but that's just something God's put on my heart, that we would have a church planter in our midst in 2020, whether it's for Souk or somewhere else. doesn't matter to me. But here's our end game as a church. Our end game isn't that West Village would grow. It isn't that we would plant churches. It's that the city of Victoria would be saturated with the gospel. So if West Village dies and a hundred other church plants are planted, praise God. Because listen, guys, no one's going to be talking about us in heaven. I promise you. I promise you. Man, did you see that church in Victoria there or something else? No. We're going to be talking about Jesus. Second thing is this, we do, and Ken's already talked about this, but we do a monthly night of prayer and worship. It's actually a day of fasting, and so we call the church to fast from sun up to sundown. And so I would encourage you to do that fast from food, just abstain from food, feast on Jesus. And then we meet at the church office from 7 to 8, and we keep it to an hour, and we pray and we worship together. We pray for our city, we pray for the churches, we pray for for our own hearts, because we think revival is going to happen here in our midst before it happens out there. And the reason that we think this is so important is because we honestly believe what I've already said, which is Jesus can do more in one minute than we can do in 10 years. And I used to, like, bash my head against walls, trying to figure out how to get people to pray. I was like, I know why we don't pray because we're not dependent. We don't need to. And so my encouragement to us as a church is to humble ourselves and pray. Community groups, take the week off. Come on Tuesday night. Rotate through who's going to watch the kids. Maybe one from each couple will come. But come together to pray. You know, we'll just pray at home. And that's good, pray at home. But here's my vision, guys, that we would just pack out that office, singing our faces off, praying our faces off, and that the Spirit of God would do something in our midst that's so powerful and undeniable that it would change and transform us and it would spill out of us into our city. Second Chronicles, and I'll close with this. Chapter 7, verse 14 says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Jesus, we confess 
We have so much to confess. We're just hot messes, every one of us. So we just confess that you are good. Oh, Lord, you're good. We need you. Would you change us? Would you transform us? Lord, we thank you that you looked at our hearts, helpless, weary, downcast, tired, and broken, and didn't say, what's wrong with you? Get it together, sign us all. Step up your game. Oh, you had compassion. You were moved, moved to the point of laying down your life for us, for me. And so, Lord, our response is just thank you. Thank you. And as we move into a time of response, Lord, I pray that you would revive our hearts right here in this moment that through our hearts you would bring revival into our homes, into our marriages, into our relationships with our kids, into our, into our city, into our neighborhoods, all, all over the place, every nook and cranny of this place, of this city of Victoria, Vancouver Island, of the country of Canada, and eventually by your grace the entire earth would be filled with your glory. Friends, what could Jesus do? What could he do? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.